answer every prayer request that we could ever think of. Lord, that you are a God that is a father who loves us. Lord, that we can come to as a child. Lord, with a childlike faith. God, that you are not a king that sits dismissive on a throne, but you are a father that loves us in a way that only a creator can. Lord, your word says, ask and you shall receive. Knock and the door will be open. Jesus, I pray that as we knock on the, on the doors this week, Lord, as we, we knock on the doors of opportunity and risk, Lord, that you would open the right doors. Jesus, that we would have the faith to follow you through them. God, as we dive into your word today, into your story, Jesus, I ask that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say. Lord, that this would not just be another Sunday, Lord, but that this would be a Sunday where we learn more about who you are and we lean into you a little bit closer. Holy Spirit, we cannot do this without you. We cannot do it without you talking to us, without you moving in and through us. Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present and active in this space. Lord, that you would have ownership of Anchor today. God, we love you. We trust you. We give you all the praise, glory, and honor. Lord, would you be about us today as we lean in and listen? It's in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. You can have a seat. The stage feels a little emptier without Kurt's hair. <laughs> a little brighter, too. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm excited for this morning because we're going to dive into a lot of stuff that isn't always talked about at traditionally at church because it has a lot to do with history and with the order of events that things happen. And I'm excited to dive in. I got really Bible nerdish this week. Uh, I just, you know, I had a stack about well, like this high, not this high, uh, of books on my desk this week because uh, the Lord just has a really magnificent way of working all things together for good. Isn't that right? And not just in your life and my life, but in like the grand scheme of things. How beautiful is that? Like the, even just the Bible that you have, think about how old these words are. And yet they speak to you. How interesting is that? that? That some ancient dead guy, you know, he listened to the Holy Spirit. He was inspired by God. And today I can read it. And it will give me new hope to just get through my shift at work. Or, or to make sure that I have faith that God's going to provide on my paycheck. You know, think about the grandness of the meta-narrative of God and how he works everything together. This sermon series, we've been in a journey on the life of Jesus. 
And we started at his adult life where he was baptized in the Jordan River. And we're going to end eventually at the cross. And last week, uh, we dove into something called the Sermon on the Mount. And we talked about how Jesus was proclaiming something new. And all throughout this series, that's the one thing. Like, if you get nothing else from this series, remember this, that Jesus was coming to introduce something new. He was coming to introduce a new covenant, a new command, a new movement. And when we left off last week, we heard him saying all sorts of weird things, like, you have heard it said, but I say. And when he said those things, he was referring to who? Moses, which would have been radical for the Jews. It would be like somebody walking up to you and saying, you have heard Jesus say, but I say this. And even though it was radical and it was uncomfortable, this is what happened. He says in Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus says that if God's arrangement with Israel was an assignment, I came to complete it and turn it in. You know, if God's arrangement with Israel was a math problem, I came to solve it. If God's arrangement with Israel was a plane, I came to land it. And this would be radical for the Jews. And then at the end of this, it says this, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who has authority and not as their teachers of the law. Which, looking at that verse, I bet that really ticked off some teachers of the law, right? (laughs) Because he spoke differently. He spoke radically differently than the teachers of the law. And so what would happen is that Jesus would go to different places and preach in synagogues and heal people and talk to people and all those things, and and they would have this huge crowd of followers. Huge Thousands of Jews would follow him around. And amidst that huge crowd, there was a smaller crowd of Pharisees. And their job was to fact-check every single thing that Jesus said and to watch him like a hawk to make sure that he didn't make any mistakes. And if he did, they were the very first to point it out. Have you ever had somebody in your life like that? The first mistake you make, they're going to find it. And that's what the Pharisees were like in Matthew 12, verse 1. It says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. You know, they say, wait a minute, okay? Somebody call the news. We don't have that, but somebody take a picture. We don't have that either. Okay, Uh, somebody look at this because you are breaking the law on the Sabbath. And Jesus gets into this discourse with the Pharisees, and he essentially says, you know, the preacher has to work on Sundays, You know, if I came to you and I said, I'm going to take off the rest of the Sundays for the year, that would be a little awkward, right? (laughs) And Jesus says that, and then he kind of rears back, and he says something that is huge, that would have been monumental to the Jews at this time. In Mark 2, verse 27, 
He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, we don't have kids so that there's somebody to play with the toys, <laughs> right? He says, God didn't create people for the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath for the people. Now, I'm going to pause here because when you're around church and religion long enough, something kind of happens. And maybe you've experienced this. Maybe something, someone close to you has experienced this. But uh, when you're around church and religion long enough, sometimes there's this tendency to start loving your religion and your church more than the people that the religion and the church were intended for. And, and then it can get into an even darker place where you choose to hurt people with your church and with your religion. You hurt the people that it was intended for. And some people, maybe you, maybe somebody that's close with you, have left the church because of that. They've left the church because for some reason this group of people loved their church more than they loved me. Or maybe it wasn't you. Maybe it was they loved the church more than they loved my child or my mom or my coworker. They loved their church, but they didn't love their people. Does that sound familiar? And the Jews had fallen into that trap. They loved their law. And they hated other people. And they loved their law so much that they neglected and they hurt others in the process. They prioritized law over people. And that's the essence of legalism, isn't it? Legalism always prioritizes a view over a you. It always prioritizes a view over a you. In fact, someone that you know might have left the church because how the church treated your divorced mom or your gay brother. And throughout the entirety of the gospel, whenever somebody used the law of God to dishonor a person made in his image, he always said you were on the wrong side. He always leaned towards love and human dignity. And then Jesus, he ends on this statement. He says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Now, when we read this, it's not that great. You know, there's not like a, ooh, you know, like there's not tension in the crowd when I say this. But when he said this, it would have been mind-blowing. He says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Now, to compare yourself to the temple was either arrogance, ignorance, or insanity, but it certainly was blasphemy. You know, to compare yourself to the temple and to say that you're greater than that, it was a threat to national security. It was something that, that would have been completely confusing. In fact, in the centuries leading up to Jesus and the centuries to follow Jesus, the temple was so important to the Jews. They would as soon die for the temple. The, the temple was uh, about 37 acres that housed the law of God, and it was this epicenter of the world. 
Now, to illustrate this idea that the Jews loved their temple, about 40 or seven years later, after Jesus says this, in 40 AD, there is a Roman Empire, and their emperor is, and I love saying, Emperor Caligulus. You want to say that with me? Caligulus. Yes. So Caligulus, he sets up, and he has this whole plot that he wants to take a statue of himself, and he wants to ship it over to Jerusalem and have them put it directly in the center of the temple. See, Caligulus was kind of like a Roman bad boy, okay? <laughs> like, he just liked to stir stuff up. But, but what he wanted to do is he wanted to put his statue in the temple just to get to the Jews, just to poke a fight. And so he put, he does what all great leaders do, he delegates the dirty work to somebody that's lower on the totem pole, and he tells this man named Petronius, which sounds like a Harry Potter thing, but uh, Petronius, who was the governor of Syria at the time, and he says, okay, Petronius, I'm going to ship this statue. You need to go to the port city, get it, receive it, and then take it to the temple. And so when Petronius, when he makes his way to the port city, he is met with thousands of Jews, thousands and, and they say, you cannot do this. And Petronius does what Romans do. They threaten violence, right? They say, that's fine, I'll just kill you. And what the Jews do, thousands of Jews do, is that they take their knees, they get on their knees, and they pull down their garments and expose their necks to Roman blades. They say, we would rather die than for you to desecrate our temple. And so he's like, okay, I'll go about this a different way. And so he takes it to Tiberias. But then there's even more Jews. And Josephus, he's a historian around that time, he says this, So they threw themselves down upon their faces and stretched out their throats and said that they were ready to be slain. And they did this for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's not even the start of it. Farmers went on strike. A whole economy was collapsing around them all because some guy wanted to put a statue of himself in the temple. That's how important the temple was to the Jews. And Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here? That's impossible. Nothing's greater than the temple, Jesus. Besides, this isn't even our first temple. The first temple was a Solomon's temple, and I have a picture of that for you. King Solomon, he was the richest and wisest man in all of creation, and he made a beautiful, intricate temple for the Jews. And then it was destroyed. Some years later, the Babylonians came in, and they carted off all of the treasure that was inside of it, and all of the important people as well. Names that you might recognize like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. And they put them into captivity. And then years later, a man, a Persian emperor named Cyrus the Great, he says, you can return to your land. And you can build your temple. But it's got to be like an Econo Lodge sort of situation, you know? And we're not doing like Holiday Inn or Holiday Inn Express where you get free. Econo Lodge, Econo Temple. And this is what it looks like. And, and it was said in the scripture that there were people, when this temple was erected, that had seen Solomon's temple. And when they watched them unveil this, they wept because it just wasn't glorious 
It wasn't what God deserved. It wasn't beautiful and wonderful like Solomon's temple. And then some years pass, and Herod becomes in power. (laughs) And he says, Jews, I want to keep you peaceful. I want to keep you quiet, so I'll build you a temple. And he says, I'm going to restore it to its former glory. And boy, howdy, does he. 37 acres of cut stone in ancient times. This was beautiful. To say that it was massive was an understatement. It was about 60 feet high, but but that wasn't the miraculous thing about it. It had these huge cut stones, huge, some of which were like 11 feet by 16 by 44 feet long. Imagine the mass of that stone. And this is before cars. This is before a forklift. Like, and this is on top of a hill. They would have marveled over these stones and said, how did they even get them here? How did they cut them? How did they transport them on top of this hill? It would have been marvelous. And Herod built this, this temple. And if you could put that picture back up there. He built this temple because this is a place where earthquakes happen. He built it earthquake-proof. That's pretty legit, right? Even the ground that it was sitting on could not overtake it. And it was strong, and it was tough. And one afternoon, Jesus and his disciples, they're leaving the temple plaza. And one of the disciples says this, Mark 13, verse 1. Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. See, this temple, it was something that you marvel at. It was something that you could see a million times, and still it's beautiful. And I think you and I specifically, we can understand this. Because we live right outside of Pikes Peak, right? And do you ever have those moments when you've seen the mountain a million times, but it just, it's having a good day. (laughs) It's having a good peak day, right? And you look out, and maybe you catch it in your rearview mirror, or you walk out of your work and you see it, and it's just glorious. I know this happens because there's always pictures of Pikes Peak on Facebook, right? And that's what would happen with the temple. People would see it a million times, but they would see it differently every once in a while and say, how beautiful, how marvelous. Look at the size of these stones. How did they even get them up here? And what happens next is epic. Verse 2. Do you see all these buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And the words that he uses here that, that, that say thrown down, that wasn't crumble. That wasn't get old with time. No, those words in the Greek literally mean to be tossed down. 44 foot long pieces of stone are going to be tossed down. We talked about a couple weeks ago about Jesus being tempted and how when you looked on the side of the highest point of the temple, people would get dizzy because of how high it was. And, and this verse, it says that he, that, or not that he, that, that the stones themselves will just be thrown down that valley. Now, if you're the disciples, you're thinking, okay, but what's the punchline, Jesus? Obviously, you're kidding. 
that just can't happen. It doesn't make any sense. You know, this, this thing, this place, it is earthquake-proof. So the earth isn't going to get it in its way. The only force that is powerful enough to throw those stones down the hill would be the Roman Empire. And guess what? They built it. <laughs> so why would they? And it wasn't even very long ago. It was about 50 years ago from this point. Why would they toss the stones down into the valley? You're making no sense, Jesus. And so they make their way out of the temple, not of the plaza, and they go to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives had a great view of the temple. I'm going to put that picture up one more time. Um, it had a great view of the temple, and you could just see the large expanse from, the, from that mount. And I want to read this scripture as you look. Because imagine yourself sitting with Jesus. The sun is setting. And this is what happens. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? Looking at this structure, looking at how grand it is, they say, okay, Jesus, but tell us when, when is this going to happen? And he does exactly that. Luke 21, we read what Jesus said to them in verse 9. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Verse 20, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. He says, when you see that Jerusalem is surrounded, you will know that it is time to leave. He says, if you're in the city, get out. And if you're in the countryside, don't get in. Don't let this happen. He goes on and he says things like, woe to the nursing mothers during these days. Pray that your wife is not pregnant. Men will faint in terror. They will die by the sword. And he says it'll be astonishing when these things take place. But notice he isn't being apologetic. And he isn't speaking in parables right now. He's speaking with this broken heart and this disturbed demeanor. Verse 34, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you, unexpectedly, like a trap. And he was not exaggerating. But if this would happen, and if you're in the crowd and the Jews are listening to this, this would be insane. This would be the end of the world as they knew it. And 40 years later, 40 years after he says these things, that's exactly what happened. Just 40 years, and that's within our, our grasp of time. Just 40 years later, that's exactly what happened. There were four years of Jewish gangs rising up all over Judea. 
the young men, the young Jewish men, they got this idea that it was their time that they could take over Rome. And so all these little gangs start popping up. And then they have one thing, which probably was the worst thing that could have happened. They had success. They overtook a Roman legion, and they get cocky. And they say, this is going to happen. This is in the bag. And they start picking fights all over Galilee and Judea. And the young men, they were fighting over who was going to be the king of Israel. And so the Romans, they get word of this, and they send the 10th legion into Israel. And what they do is kind of like herding cats or children, you know. They start from the exterior, and they work their way closer and closer to the middle, herding the Jews in closer and closer. And after they get to the epicenter of Jerusalem, and all the Jews are in there, they build a stone wall. And then they put up siege works or forts with armed guards around it. And then what happens next is terrible because it's festival time. And so thousands of thousands of Jews are making a pilgrimage to the temple to celebrate the festival. And at first, the Roman guards, they don't let them in. But then uh, the emperor Vespasian, he says, no, let them in actually escort them in. And then once they're all in, seal it. Because then their food supply will run out faster. And to be alive during that time in the middle of a city was disaster. During the day, you fought with the Romans. During the night, you fought with each other for food. Grain houses caught on fire because of disagreements. Woe to the the nursing mother is right. Men fainted in fear because of this. And once once Rome defeated and got into the final place, the 10th legion went into the city on August 6th, 70 AD. And they killed everything that couldn't be sold into slavery. They burned everything that they could. And once they were done... They literally dragged every stone of the temple and threw it off the hill. You can still see those stones today. I have a picture of it. These massive stones that were literally drug off and tossed into the valley to say, Judaism is over. And that's where we find ourselves today. That it all happened just as Jesus predicted. You can see the temple today. I have a picture. Um, This is not taken but a couple years ago. This is what that space looks like. Uh, The the, uh, Dome of the Rock was built in 700 AD by the Muslims. And this place was, was there so that Jews and Muslims could come and see where Abraham sacrificed Ishmael or Isaac, whichever religion you embraced. And then they built a mosque, which is right here in the, in the, right in the front. And they built a mosque, but it wasn't that large at first because, like I said, there were a lot of earthquakes. So an earthquake happens, and the mosque crumbles. <laughs> and so they built it again. And then another earthquake happens. And so then they built it to this size. And they built it like Herod, 
They built it earthquake-proof. 1099 AD, the Crusades happened, and they retook the city, and they turned that mosque into a church. And then about 88 years later, later, the Muslims come in, and they retook the city, and rabbinic Judaism was born. But temple Judaism has never returned. Sacrifices, law, temple, it's never returned. Mark 13, verse 2, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. <laughs> Just like he said. Now I'm going to depart from the, the storyline just for a second because you have to notice this because this is cool. And it's a little bit complicated and like, but we have to get there, okay? So when you read scripture, you read, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you read, you read John, you read scripture that was written by Paul. And after the, because after the disciples, there was a group of people called the apostles. And after the apostles, there was another group of people that we refer to as the church fathers, now, when the church fathers started off, they started off saying things like I'm saying. They said, aha, it happened, just like he said. But when we read our Bibles, when we read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we have to wrestle this question down to the ground, and that is, how could they resist? How could they resist not saying, and it happened just as Jesus said? You know, they said that all the time. Why in the world is there not a text like Mark 57, verse 2, you know, and it happened just as Jesus said? How could they resist that moment? Why in the world does he not say that? And I'll tell you why it doesn't say this. Because when the Gospel of Mark was written, the temple was still standing. When the Gospel of Matthew was written, the temple was still standing. It, he includes the predictions of the temples being destroyed, but he doesn't say that it actually happened because it hadn't happened yet. You know, when the Gospel of Luke was written, the temple was still standing. And Luke, if there's anybody that's going to put in all of the facts, it's Luke. And he doesn't include it because it hasn't happened yet. And the reason that when we go to school or we read something that is contrary to this, that says that the Gospels were written just generations after this could have possibly happened, it comes from this prediction. When people say that the church fathers, that they were evil and corrupt and they just wrote the Gospels themselves, this is indisputable evidence that they didn't. Because this would be so powerful if it was included. And this is truth. This is a, a, a moment that we can say, I can trust this Bible. I can trust what God says. Because it happened just as he predicted. 20 years after this, when the, the temple is still up, 20 years, Paul, an ex-temple-loving, Christian-persecuting Pharisee, he writes to ex-pagans in Corinth, and he says this, verse Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? He says the Holy Spirit, 
that resides in the Holy of Holies has left the building and he is alive and active in you. For you are a temple. See, Jesus came to fulfill the law and to replace it with something that is far less confusing, far more demanding, and incredibly portable. Very convenient. And he says that you, your bodies are a temple, and no longer will there be sacred geography. No longer will there be sacred buildings. No longer will there, will there be sacred pol politics, even. There are only sacred people. He says, you're sitting next to sacred. You're hired by sacred. You talk to sacred. You raise sacred. You're all around sacred image bearers of the only king. And that's where we should stand up and take notice that Jesus is worth listening to. Because he set the stage for things like the end of slavery. He set the stage for dignity for all mankind and womankind. <laughs> because there's something that is intrinsically connected between the cross and human dignity. Because when Jesus got up and took the cross, he declared your worth. that you are a temple and that I live inside. And his invitation is very simple. He just says, follow me. And why wouldn't I want to? Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are so great. Lord, that you work everything together for your good and for glory. Jesus, that when you were plotting this out, that you had my life in mind, that you had our salvation in mind. Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are. God, not because you have to prove it, but because you do. Lord, would you be about our worship and our praises today? in Jesus' precious and holy name.